You're listening to Simulcast. So welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel, and this is the next in our series with Advances in Simulation, the open access journal uh, that is the journal of CSAM, the Society for Simulation in Europe. Uh, this episode is a little self-indulgent on my part because it's a paper that uh, I've co-authored with some other great friends. And Ben Simon's going to be our host. You'll hear his voice throughout the episode. Uh, he's having a chat with myself and Chris Nixon, who, who he will introduce during the episode. But you'll also hear the voice every now and again of Stephanie Barwick, who is another one of our co-authors. Many of you will know Steph. She's been a guest on the podcast before, and she also works as the Director of Clinical Education at MARTA Education, where she does her translational simulation work. So, on to the podcast. Simulcast. All right. Uh, well, thank you for joining us uh, this evening. I'm Ben Simon, and we're here tonight on Simulcast with one of our Advances episodes, where we highlight and explore a recently published paper from Advances in Simulation. And this month's paper is entitled Translational Simulation from Description to Action. Uh, the authors are Chris Nixon, Andrew Petrosoniak, Stephanie Barwick and Vic Brazel. And it was published uh, in 4th of March 2021. And I'm joined tonight by two of the authors, our very own Vic Brazel. Vic, how are you going? I am very well. Thank you, Ben. Uh, great. And also Chris Nixon, who I know many of you will be uh, very familiar with. But for those of you who are not aware, Chris is an intensivist and ECMO specialist at the Alfred ICU in Melbourne, as well as the innovation lead for the Australian Centre for Health Innovation at Alfred Health, as well as a fair number of other uh, educational and academic achievements that we'll explore uh, further in the podcast. Chris, how are you? Yeah, really good. And um, I just want to say it's uh, fantastic to be here. And uh, I just did this podcast with Marie Curie on Radium. So I thought I'll jump at the chance to do translational simulation with Victoria <laughs> Brazel as well, if that's uh, any sort of parallel. But no, it is, it is great <laughs> to be here. <laughs> great. So look, a little bit of background for our listeners. Translational simulation is defined as healthcare simulation whose purpose is to directly improve patient care and healthcare systems through diagnosing safety and performance issues and delivering simulation-based interventions. And this sounds great in principle, but for those of us moving from a medical education context towards more translational goals, it can be a very different headspace to work in. And before this paper came out, we didn't really have much of a roadmap for how to get there. But Vic and Chris, I just really wanted to start with, as I was preparing for this podcast, it kind of occurred to me both uh, that both of you are these kind of powerhouses in medical education and FOMED, but now you both seem to be making a bit of a shift away here from educating people to changing systems. What's that about? I'm happy to take a first stab at that after such a compliment, Ben. Thank you. But for me, this was a little bit about uh, starting from a place where the focus in simulation, and I think to some extent in education as well, was on method rather than on purpose. I think we saw a lot of descriptors of simulation and at the time a lot of thought about in situ simulation and thinking that the method was what we had to pursue. This in situ simulation is good. Uh, being in the sim lab is not as good. And these kind of really unhelpful comparisons of method without appreciating that actually what we really need to be focusing on was purpose. And to your point about being an educator and sort of changing lanes, uh, I think as educators it's easy for us to make assumptions about what we do in helping people to learn 
will actually influence the performance of systems. And I think they're really big assumptions. So for me, this was a pretty natural progression of saying, you know what, as an educator, I have to take some responsibility for the complexity and not just throw up my hands and say, if only the system was better, my healthcare professionals would do better. Uh, and instead say, you know what, we need to take responsibility for the system. And a lot of the skills that we've got, whether it's in SIM or education, can actually help shape the behaviour of teams and systems, not just individuals. So they're symbiotic but uh, worth focusing separately in terms of our consideration when we think about them. Yeah, ideally they're complementary and uh, whereas I think often we consider them intention. Great. Any thoughts, Chris? Uh, Yeah, well, I guess from me, um, from my point of view, uh, I guess the whole time I've been working in healthcare, I guess one of my key drivers has always been, you know, how can we take better care of patients? And as a trainee, that started off with trying to make myself uh, better at my job and what I do. And then I guess one of the spinoffs for me was that I uh, um, got to work with my colleague and mentor, Mike Cadogan, and um, we did a, you know, create a website called Life in the Fast Lane and start spreading um, stuff that I was learning and being able to share that with others. And um, then I guess one of the things that came out of that ultimately was the SMAC conference, and that's where in 2014 a 21-year-old Victoria Brazel was on stage and uh, gave this talk um, on uh, timing tribes and STEMIs. And I wasn't involved in simulation at all at that point, but that point, but it was very persuasive for me that um, simulation could be used to improve patient care processes. And, and really that that meant there was going to be at a much bigger scale than sort of one or a few learners at a time. Um, and my simulationist journey really started after that. So for me, it's always been totally intertwined. I don't feel like I've shifted lanes at all. And, and they are complementary because Better patient care needs better individual performance, it needs better team performance, and it needs better system performance. So I'm wondering if we can take that as the lead to then explore with you, Chris, what's your thoughts about the core messages from this paper? Yeah, sure. Um, Well, I guess what I'd say is that if you want an approach to translational simulation that you can use in the real world, um, hopefully this article will help you um, because what we've tried to do is pull together some clear guiding principles um, that you can apply across a range of patient care problems and contexts. And the reason for it is that because although there's been a nice, clear definition of translational simulation in terms of its purpose, and there's also great context-specific examples in the literature, um, not all of those actually self-identify as translational simulation for a start and it can actually be hard to go from those sometimes where they have a specific context with um, uh, specific resources tackling that specific problem to go from there to what you want to do in your workplace so I I think we've kind of lacked that roadmap from how to go from describing the concept to how we actually put it all into action and make it happen Uh, so I, I, I think of it as kind of like the paper I wish I read maybe seven years ago yeah, I'm wondering, um, Vic, if you'd be happy to add some granularity about that, about some of the transition from design, uh, defining translational simulation and then this journey to making it happen. Yeah, I think Chris has put that really well. Uh, what we see is lots of case study examples and it's sometimes quite hard as you read those, uh, whether it's someone 
getting their stroke care done faster, whether it's someone who's uh, improving their performance in postpartum hemorrhage by reducing transfusion requirements. Uh, We see lots of these examples written up where people have gone use strategies that might be a combination of educational simulation or very well-described translational simulation. Uh, But we didn't know how much of that was generalizable, how much of that process was what they describe in the sim and how much of it was a strategy that they had in their hospitals, how much of it was the governance processes that they did, how much of it was the engagement of the participants in that, and how much were they able then to demonstrate uh, to their health service leadership uh, and to their participants. So I think Chris has done a fabulous job of nudging a few of us into saying, come on, let's try and distill this down with enough granularity that you've got a set of principles if you're thinking about choosing a health service target and using simulation as part of your strategy to achieve it, uh, but not so much granularity that we lose the principle uh, in the specific context. Simulcast. For me, the the main message or the main outcome of this paper has been really almost like a playbook for people who are thinking about or uh, already implementing translational simulation in their own organizations. I think it really gives a tangible, um, a, a tangible way of putting it into practice and also a little bit more of a deeper understanding of what translational simulation is, but also how it can be implemented in, in practice. Thank you. So let's jump into the paper a little bit. It presents us with three case vignettes to ponder, a hospital creating a new trauma bay, a hospital that's moving its ECT service to a more isolated part of their site, and a maternity unit that reports having a fractured and somewhat siloed subcultures within their service. And after leaving those vignettes for readers to ponder, you step through an input process output framework for approaching a translational simulation intervention. Chris, what's an IPO and why do we need a structured approach here? Yes, it's pretty sophisticated. Um, What goes in must come out and stuff happens in the middle. Um, (laughs) But I guess in Input process output, it's it's a simple framework that I guess has been used a lot in fields like process engineering, team science, quality management. Uh, And I guess it really, it's about thinking about how we go from an initial state to an outcome. And so uh, we thought that would be a, a nice, simple approach for looking at what we do with translational simulation and to create kind of an operational framework for it. So how we can actually um put ideas into action and uh so might just talk a little bit about um the three phases but really what we what i think we're trying to do is um make sense of all the many many choices we need to make along the way and how to integrate them into coherent coherent whole that you can really explain to others who are involved in the process and make sure that you address all the major considerations um, as you're going through it. Maybe one of those ideas that seems simple once you're aware of its existence, but certainly from uh, from my perspective, and I'm sure many others, not having thought about this from that systemic perspective before, it's a really helpful framework to sort of hang these concepts of how to get started at taking a more 
intentional and structured approach to using SIM as a translational tool. So after taking us through the IPO framework, the paper lists some principles uh, that are important to a successful translational simulation service. And I just want to explore some of those individually and invite you both to comment. So the first one is this concept of having a systems approach. And I was wondering, Vic, if you'd be happy to comment on that. Yeah, well, I can take one that's, say, familiar to critical care uh, healthcare professionals, endotracheal intubation. We've spent a lot of time describing the right way of doing this, often by people who are enthusiasts. And yet when you think about what is the performance of my institution in rapid sequence intubation, it's going to be dependent on so many things. Yes, that would include the individual skills of the doctors and nurses uh, primarily who are involved in that, but also the skills of a range of others who might have helped support those systems, uh, including the people that do the restocking, the people that do the sterilising, the people that order the uh, CMAC machines, uh, as well as some other things that we might not pay attention to, but which someone like Andrew Petrosoniak would, which is what's your design and ergonomics of the physical environment in which you would be performing this procedure. But then even think further, what kind of data do we collect on this? Who audits our RSIs? How do we know how many desaturations we're having? So you start to understand that the performance of our institution is really complex and it consists of much more than getting the junior registrars to stand with a plastic mannequin and lift up the, the plastic tongue with a laryngoscope and put a tube in. And yet we spend so much time doing that latter task thinking we're going to improve our intubations. Now, that task is necessary, but it is in no way sufficient. We need to take this systems approach and whether it's SIM or other modalities, we need to be thinking about the complexity of the ultimate performance. And I think that principle to me has just continued to remind me of the importance of taking a whole systems approach to any intervention. And I, uh, a really important one for many of us who are used to sort of just throwing sims at a problem without necessarily a lot of sophisticated thought about the uh, interrelated processes uh, that are within that healthcare ecosystem. Yeah, absolutely. And the one thing I'd also add, and I think our quality improvement friends teach us this, is that anything that we do as an intervention will also have what they would call balancing measures, which says all the time that you're now spending on RSI is time that you're not spending on uh, people's capabilities and institutional performance in recognising and addressing family violence, in uh, actually managing other things such as uh, healthcare-related infections. So just recognise that every choice we make has positives, but ultimately there are also downsides. Whenever we put the attention to one thing or change one thing, we have to be very mindful of the fact that it may sometimes have detrimental effects in other areas. Uh, the next principle that the paper outlines is stakeholder involvement and participatory design. And uh, while I think we've alluded to that with some of the complexities uh, related to an original clinical problem, I was wondering, Chris, if you could talk a little bit more about how that can go well. Yeah, so I think um, I, I kind of view human factors ergonomics as probably the, the basic science underpinning uh, translational simulation. And human-centered design is a, is a key component of that. Um, I guess when you think about it, most human error is really design error. And each system is designed, whether intended or not, to achieve exactly the results that it achieves. 
So it makes you think, how do we actually make things better? And it means that we need to um, adapt things, design things to the needs of the humans involved. So I guess a, a stakeholder really is anyone who influences an activity or is influenced by that activity. And so we need to go to those people and really learn from them uh, what the messy reality is uh, work is done uh, rather than this uh, fictional workers imagined state. And the beauty of it is, is that frontline workers are often the best people for creating the solutions to the problems that exist as well. We just need to find ways to tap into their insights. And I think translational simulation is a really great way to do that um, because it, it just gets them involved. It gives them a tangible thing to um, uh, share their ideas and, and problems and solutions uh, and a venue for it. And it actually becomes a great change management strategy as well because they are brought along in the journey and they uh, they end up with a sense of ownership uh, uh, of what's actually created. So it's, again, a, a symbiotic process that helps you find a better solution but also means that the solution that is found is more likely to be bought in by uh, your team as well. Yeah, totally. And sometimes you you wonder if your simulation's actually done anything other than that, but that can make a difference. From what we've seen, and certainly from what we've known uh, about the descriptions in the literature, by involving end users early uh, throughout the process of translational simulation activities, they're often much more resilient to the usual teething problems that will always occur when you're commencing or implementing new processes, opening new environments, or even bringing new teams together. So it's almost uh, a a protective factor, uh, that early stakeholder engagement, particularly with the end users. Uh, And and when I say end users, I'm also talking about healthcare consumers in in that space. Uh, And then the third one is probably my favourite in terms of uh, just the nomenclature, but naming a strategy and not an event. Vic, what did you guys mean by that? Yeah, I think unfortunately because our simulations are run as events, we have vested a lot in thinking that that is where uh, our focus should be. Uh, And this really probably puts a lot more responsibility on us to say we might need a multimodal approach to whatever problem we're dealing with. So as an example, we've spent the last six years working on improving our relationships in trauma care as the idea that that underpins a performance in many, many specific examples. And what we have done, yes, we've had a monthly trauma simulation, and that has been uh, what my friend Eve Purdy would call a cornerstone ritual as an anthropologist. But what we've started to discover is that many other things that we do, whether it's small-scale sims where we're practicing getting to CT safe and fast, or whether it's uh, orientation sims for the new surgeons who've arrived and we're actually running short, sharp things where we're focused on just getting used to our trauma reception processes, we start to see that there's a multimodal approach and any one sim isn't going to be an answer to anything. But in fact, we're going to need to have, uh, you know, some discipline and some uh, thoughts about how do we approach this problem from multifaceted ways. It also, though, means that that strategy needs to have a lot of what Chris's uh, input process output model describes, which is what's the end point, what are we measuring, how are we feeding back, as well as thinking about what's it going to take and is there actually bang for buck with this because I've certainly been part of simulations where a huge amount of effort has gone in and it isn't necessarily repaid with the outcome that you want. So 
uh, strategy is the key. Certainly for my, uh, at the organisation I work at, uh, particularly with new facility or environments, we're part of the Capital Works project with the intention that translational sim is brought in at very different, uh, throughout the project and at different parts of the project life cycle. So in the early concept process, uh, translational simulation can be used and is often used to understand feasibility, particularly if you're repurposing new areas. During the design phase, translational simulation can be used to support uh, informed design sign-offs by stakeholders or uh, understanding what the design or how the design works in practice. In the construction phase, it can support the designing of workflows or the uh, testing of workflows, I guess, that have been um, considered in, in the new environment. And obviously during commissioning, it's used for, and we use it a lot for understanding operational readiness prior to opening, but also for experiential orient, orientation. And more, more so now with the work out of the Gold Coast, we use it for those cultural connections with staff who, who are coming together in a new environment who, who may have never ever worked together. Makes a lot of sense, and I think that ties in well to the next principle of disciplined focus. Uh, I think a lot of the paper uh, is about having that intentional uh, design and uh, a very focused strategy. Chris, did you have anything to add there? Yeah. Uh, so I guess we the the input part of the the model is actually quite big, and, and a lot of it is focused on really trying to define the problem and. Uh, so asking yourself, what is it that we're actually trying to accomplish here? Um, and, uh, and I think that's really important because especially if you're, um, as big a picture thinker as I am and, um, and, and as bad as I am at, uh, recognizing one's limitations for what you can, uh, uh bite off and try and chew when you're addressing systems issues, you, you really do need, need that focus. So, Often finding the bottlenecks or the pressure points in processes can be a good starting point where you can get the biggest bang for your buck. Um, uh, you know, so an example is say you're wanting to do um, improve a time critical process like emergency surgery or getting to the cath lab, and you you might start to realise that it's actually all about the preparation. So you don't actually even need to simulate the procedure. Just work on that preparation phase. Um, and also being aware, though, that by focusing in on bottlenecks or having this discipline focus, that you can't lose sight of the big picture because, as we know, you change one part of the system, there can be unintended consequences elsewhere. And that's why, um, I guess, one of the caveats with putting things down on a linear input process output sort of model creates this illusion of linearity when in reality it's iterative because every time you uh, do something in every time you enact translational simulation you're going to get new information new perspectives and that helps you redefine the problem and every part of this um, whole strategy. I agree with your uh, examples there Chris and I think it does uh, unearth a tension that exists between what I would say on one hand, which is don't try and make your sim about everything. If you're trying to 
explore why your intubations go wrong. Don't also be trying to embed a new checklist, like have a little bit of tension that exists there. Uh, but at the same time, we also recognise that we might be doing sims for a particular purpose and we start to unearth and un- understand what we're looking at a whole lot better. So I think you can still have a disciplined focus while allowing yourself to um, be interested in the other things that might be unearthed serendipitously. There were a few of those kind of dualities throughout this section of the paper in terms, and, and I wondered whether you guys as authors had... Uh, found that difficult to find that sweet spot between uh, being clear and generic enough that this was a useful framework, uh, but still acknowledging that because SIM does so many things and affects things on so many levels that it that will still happen, uh, but maybe where we f- put our focus and, and strategy is, is still going to make a huge difference. No, no, it was very easy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we had no arguments at all. I figured, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but, but I guess I think that's where that the really appreciating the iterative nature of it is, because um, no matter what you do at one phase, you're going to learn. You're going to learn more stuff as you go through, and you can always change your mind. Uh, great. And then the, the last principle was functional task alignment. Uh, and hopefully some people have listened to last month's journal club, but I was wondering if either of you are happy to jump in on why that is important very specifically to translation or soon. Uh, I'd offer one which is where I started, which is uh, not defining our activity by the method. And Inside You Sim is, I think, a pretty good example where uh, it's an excellent choice if the things that you're exploring or testing or embedding or improving rely on that physical environment or or the people in it. But often we might be able to achieve those things with a very different uh, approach, including a sim lab or maybe even something that's not a clinical example. So uh, I guess what I'd say is still choose your location and your method very carefully for that purpose. Yeah, and I, I might just add to that that um, obviously this is a simulation concept um, as opposed to some of the other concepts pull, pulled from other areas. And, um, you know, the important thing is that whatever we do is aligned with our objectives to achieve outcomes that can that are aligned with those objectives. And uh, I was just sort of reflecting that, um, so like uh, our colleague uh, Andrew Petrosoniak has um, co-authored a paper on uh, sort of design thinking informed simulation or simulation informed design thinking. I can't remember which way around it goes. But that's an example, I think, where this functional task alignment concept can actually tie in quite nicely because if you're doing a design thinking approach, one of the key principles is you want to generate prototypes that fail rapidly and you can learn from it and then build a new one. So having a very... um, uh, low resource intensive type of simulation, maybe a desktop simulation, maybe just standing around a mannequin and having people walk around and say, what if I stand here? What if I stand there? Um, so that you can iteratively get through a whole bunch of um, simulations, prototyping a process, and then shift to a testing phase where you do more immersive, um, more realistic, uh, so to speak, simulations with authentic teams, et cetera, uh, can be a way to go. So I think that ties in quite nicely with that concept. So not just uh, 
what sort of technology are we using to replicate reality, but also what sort of sim zone, for example, or what sort of you know specific simulation strategy are we using? And they're not all going to be in situ to get the most efficient bang for our buck. It can mean you can have a bit of fun as well. I think I was talking to you, Ben, about some work we're doing with an institution where we're trying to set up a new neurointerventional service at a hospital. And somehow we had to simulate the biplane, which is an enormous piece of equipment which has rotating arms trying to get uh, radiology images of the head in three dimensions. So we've actually got one of those inflatable bubble soccer balls that we're going to put over the head area of the operating theatre. So, uh, you know, it allows us a little bit of playtime as well. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes the most innovative and cheap solution is also the most awesome. Yeah, and and that's what's great about the whole thing is that it's an inherently creative process. Uh, You don't find solutions, uh, you create them. And uh, that's one of the things that I really like about it. Uh, Fantastic. So I am wondering, we've gone through those initial case vignettes and we've explored the importance of those underlying principles. And now, Chris, I was wondering if you could say, you know, someone hasn't thought through this process before I would really appreciate uh, a granular kind of example of how to approach a problem could you give us a hypothetical example to work through yeah and I I am wary that uh, you have to be careful what you ask for so (laughs) (laughs) so 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 apologies if uh, this this uh, gets uh, uh, pretty granular Um, but hopefully um, trying to uh, paint the picture of a, a real-world type translational simulation um, strategy and real-world problem hopefully um, enables people to really get to grips with it a bit more. But So I'm going to use a hypothetical example that's pretty close to my own experience. Uh, but let's just imagine that uh, someone in your hospital executive um, read the arrest trial that was published in The Lancet in 2020, showing that ECMO CPR in, uh, in um, patients with refractory uh, prolonged cardiac arrest get 43% survival compared with 7% survival from standard ACLS. They like the sound of that. They want you to make it happen in your hospital. Take it away. That, that's your challenge. So um, many of the listeners will have heard me just say ECMO CPR and be trying to Google it or something now. Um, I'll tell you just the bare minimum that you sort of need to know. But really, um, let's paint the picture here. We we all probably can imagine what a cardiac arrest scenario is with a team actively resuscitating them. And then imagine another team who maybe don't actually know anyone else in the room descend um, possibly even in the middle of it, and then um, start to put big pipes into the patient, into major vessels, taking blood out of them, uh, oxygenating it, pumping it back into them to uh, try and uh, support their body while while their heart's not working. Um, and so there's all this equipment arriving, um, new people arriving. It's a high acuity, low occurrence procedure where if you do it wrong, the complications can be catastrophic. And there's risk to staff like blood exposure, exposure to sharps, or even getting defibrillated. Um, and what's worse, the longer it takes to do it, the worse the patient outcomes. So um, how does that sound for an uh, example? So I guess if we have sort of non-medical listeners, what, what I'm hearing, Chris, is you've got two uh, 
very different teams, both in terms of culture and strategy and intervention that they can offer, who are coming together and converging at a, a very time critical, uh, dangerous period for the patient, and that it involves risks for the patient, but also to the staff as well. And I think the other thing I've heard is equipment that would be unfamiliar to many of the people in the room, uh, processes and procedures that would be unfamiliar. And I think I've heard and actually felt the, you know, my own heart rate rising, the uh, time criticality of this and the potential for people to have very different views on what should happen. Yeah, and, and all this equipment just takes up a lot of space <laughs> and, and uh, you've got to fit everyone in the room and uh, so they don't trip over each other. So where to from there then, Chris? Uh, so a good place to start is probably the input phase of our, our, our model. And I guess um, uh, an important starting point is always to define what the problem is. And so I guess the way I'd look at tackling that would be I want to find out who the relevant stakeholders are, as we've already discussed. Um, one of the key things I'd be wanting to do is just getting a feel for what the buy-in is from all the relevant teams and departments that are going to need to be involved in this. And it would also be worthwhile sort of benchmarking, seeing what's happening in other centres um, and how they, especially other centres that have gone through the process, um, how they've done it and what they've learned. And one of the key things that I think if you did this is that you'd learn that things like the use of cognitive aids like roll cards um, uh, can be very useful. And, and it's particularly important in a situation like this because we're going to be relying on ad hoc teams. So what I mean by that is teams that the, the personnel involved are always different um, and a really a true ad hoc team, the roles may vary as well. But one of the strategies we can use is to try and standardise those roles. And so I guess after you've gone through that process, you could probably identify a few key things. So let's say in this hospital, you realize that it's actually cardiothoracic surgeons who do the um, the bulk of uh, putting people on ECMO in this hospital. Uh, but you do have a pool of other practitioners, say from cardiology, the emergency department, ICU, who are actually interested in developing the skills for um, uh, doing the cannulation and getting those big pipes into the patients. And you've also got ICU nurses and perfusionists who are willing to um, adapt their practice to come down and, and help, say, in the emergency department and other locations around the hospital where this procedure might need to be performed. Once, I've, once you've got all that information, I guess the, the next step you want to step back and go, well, so what is it that we're trying to accomplish here? Is this going to be, uh, are we thinking, do we need, is this diagnostic? Is it intervention? Is it a bit of both? And, and I guess based on this, I'd be thinking, uh, well, there's this problem of training people up and doing stuff like that. It would be nice if we could outsource that to existing courses and uh, maybe other continuing professional development and really just focus on how we're going to design the process and get a process that works here. Um, and so it's going to be primarily an intervention, creating a new uh, clinical process in a hospital that fits in with the rest of the hospital s system. But I'm also going to be aware that there's going to be unknown barriers that exist. And um, as we go along, we're probably going to get a feel for what those are and diagnose what they are and address them as we go. So we've got some uh, information gathering, some benchmarking 
of uh, standards of care, uh, some identification of key players within your group and already some sort of draft ideas about solutions and, and the beginning of some idea sharing. And, and remember that uh, that discipline focus. So um, for this purpose, we've decided we don't want to be the people going, you know, like teaching people how to cannulate. We're, we're just focusing in on the process. That training aspect is, a, is another problem that needs to be addressed. Great. Sounds so talk us through the process. Yeah. Uh, so... Um, so the next bit, and, and this bit, I guess, to people who do simulation is maybe a little bit easier because we want to uh, sort of form our team, um, decide what sort of simulation activities we're going to um, deliver, how we're going to deliver them, what modalities and stuff we're going to use. And then I guess the thing that might be a little bit different if you're just coming from a simulation-based education background is the aspect of thinking about your data collection and how you're going to analyze that data. So let's say in this circumstance, it's primarily going to be clinician-led. You've got a bunch of people with content expertise, people who are um, uh, have expertise in delivering simulation as well, and you might want to tie into your team people who have uh, experience in either quality improvement, uh, guideline development, and and also have a patient safety perspective. Uh, you know, the exact makeup will vary from um, uh, context to context, but something like that would be a good team. And uh, the types of activities, I guess, I'd be thinking. Well, we're going to have to think about maybe this this um, complex process may have to happen in the emergency department. It might happen in the ICU, the cath lab, on the ward, or in the um, operating theatre and so or, or it might just be some of those places so we, we've got to have a little bit of think about that that's going to inform what we're going to do and it might be useful to have like at least an informal task analysis of what's actually involved in the process uh, to begin with and you can get that either from the literature or from other centres that are already doing doing a process. And then what we could look at doing would be maybe even some simple desktop simulations at the outset of just getting all the players in the room and start talking about it would be a good start. And that also means, you know, you could even do it with Lego or, or a little bed space and say, well, if he's standing here, he's standing there, this equipment's going to take up this room and get a bit of a feel for it. Uh, another thing that we actually did when we went through this process was literally just have a mannequin on the bed and we all just... Um, went through 30 iterations of standing around the bed in different places and saying, okay, well, I'm going to do this. Then I'll ask, no, actually, you should do that. I'll do this bit. And and gradually started building up some role cards describing who should do what and where they should stand. And uh, so that's very much kind of that design phase. And then you might start to move into a testing phase using um, more immersive simulation, and that will also blend into, I guess, training and a maintenance phase as you go. Uh, so th that's just kind of give you a feel of the types of simulation activities that that we could do there. 
And I guess just to sort of add to that, I think one of the things that we tried to make clear in the paper is to use tools that might be unfamiliar to educators, but much more familiar to people involved in improving quality in healthcare. And there are plenty of those around, and that is relevant both for the process phase and then, you know, data collection phase, as well as the output phase. So I think it's also just a good idea to think about your team as also including people who are used to gathering and processing these kind of metrics. Yeah, yeah, and I think that point really stood out to me was that you know you're in this phase you're assembling your league of extraordinarily extraordinary healthcare professionals, but you're drawing not just from your traditional sim educator group, but from that wider breadth of perspectives and strategic experience, and I guess uh, identifying those people who can add uh, systemic knowledge, data collection, uh, research expertise, and quality and safety lenses that we might not necessarily have within our educational experience. Yeah, sorry. And and one of the key um, aspects of that is you don't necessarily need all the same people in phase in, uh, involved in every phase. And so picking the right people at different phases uh, uh, can be really important. Uh, I think that's a really great tip. I like that that was outlined in the paper as well. Um, and then that you would start with tabletops or low resource intensive sims that can be rapidly repeated and brought through multiple iterations with minimal cost to the team, but maximal sort of revision. And then a testing phase where we up our dosage of realism uh, while ensuring that quality measurements of care are occurring and we can bring in more people to see how this actually plays out. Would that be correct? Yeah, exactly. And um, and then I guess that segues into uh, a little bit of the how you how you're going to collect data and analyze the data. And uh, um, I guess one of the key um, data collection tools that, uh, uh, that that I like to use is uh, matched observers. So um, observers of the simulation who actually would be performing those roles as well. So they have insight into the role and can kind of really appreciate the work that's being done. And then also having observers who ha just have um, relevant content expertise. Like if there was going to be some IT interface in there, you might want an IT expert just to be around seeing what's going on as well. And, uh, and you might want to um, either use or create uh, observer tools for them. So for instance, if you already know um, roughly what the process of the ECMO CPR is going to be, you might want to give them a tool highlighting key elements that you want them to focus on. Um, you need to think about how you're going to collect data from the debriefs or the learning conversations that you have and things like the Perl systems integration framework is a, is a good starting point there. Uh, another thing that can be really useful is video recording these so that you've then got post-event data that you can go back and look at, measure the times of phases of the procedure, uh, so on and so forth. And um, uh, with this particular thing where we're going to be thinking about creating cognitive aids or role cards uh, that help people identify what they should do in the roles, then they need to be constantly analysed and updated as you go through this process. And uh, a, a tool that I like to use, particularly with the clinical space testing, but um, I think can also be used with a process um, development is uh, healthcare failure modes effect analysis, which basically just means as you go through this, you periodically um, punch in what do you think are the latent threats here or what are the risks? 
and then you have a go at quantifying how frequent they'll be, how severe they are, and um, if if it starts happening, can you stop it? And that can then give you clues for, okay, well, we need to start developing mitigation strategies to this. It can then also incorporate into your simulations. So that's a lot of stuff to take in. <laughs> and just for Simulcast listeners, uh those failure modes effect analysis, the couple of authors, Melanie Barlow, uh, writing about her documentation framework, uh, but also Nora Coleman. So they're both papers that we looked at in Simulcast before, and I'll make sure I've got some links on them on the uh, blog post for this. Uh, great. So we've talked about the process phase, and now can you finally walk us through output? Yeah, and, and so this is sometimes a bit of a forgotten thing, I think, um, uh, because you, you've done all the work now, you know what's going on, and you just want to move on to the next thing. Uh, but but I think that the output phase is really about how we report our findings, how we disseminate them, and then stepping back and reviewing the overall project, um, both for kind of, uh, you know, what we've learned about how we deliver translational simulation in our service, but also is this going to lead on to another project uh, or has it identified other organizational needs? And and so I'd be imagining from a project like this that you'd want to create a uh, a pretty uh, a pretty slick summary report for that would be suitable for your heads of department and your hospital executive to read that would include things like the a description of the overall strategy you've used, the number of simulation activities, all the people you've had involved, and then really sort of map out the process improvements you've had. So that could include things like the improvements in time to cannulation that you've seen in simulation as you've as you've gone along, um, identifying the findings from that uh, failure modes effects analysis you've done and demonstrating that you've put in strategies to mitigate the the risks that have been found. And then it's always good just to highlight the key learnings from the project that are relevant to the organization. And um, this summary report will probably also dovetail with a new clinical practice guideline, um, the dissemination of the of the cognitive aids that you've created, and um, and probably things like designing a new ECMO trolley um, and things like that that would all come out of this process. Uh, I would pick up on what Chris said because I, I suppose the the beautiful example he gave and the very detailed, disciplined focus is uh, a marvelous example. Uh, I would be worried if people thought that you couldn't do this if you didn't have the kind of resources and in-depth understanding and skill set that Chris Nixon has. So I guess I would just say also recognise that this is a mindset about what we're trying to do and finding ways of getting there that involve people. And just by contrast, you know, we recently had to set up a COVID vaccination clinic and there's a lot of focus on it so everyone wanted to do it right. But because we had a number of the staff there, including some pharmacists and some of the nurses who'd been through our simulation faculty development process, they essentially designed their own iterative process, starting with here's what we think is going to work, stepping through it, having a series of simulations, finding some things did, some things didn't, making things more efficient, and simply with the resources that they had for their uh, clinic, doing those things a week before helped them to refine it. So I think it is worth recognising that this is about an approach and an ethos that we hope then expands and contracts to the size of the problem and the uh, facilities and resources that we have at our disposal. 
Yeah, I just want to um, uh, underline that point as well because uh, we explicitly, in sort of creating this model and choosing the examples we discuss in the in the paper, uh, there's a whole spectrum from um, you're a clinician who, you know, you just want to make things better in your department and you don't have any other real resources except that you know how to run simulations uh, to having a well-developed translational simulation service or maybe what will happen in the future will there'll be more um, like external consultants who come into uh, hospital or health systems and actually provide the service um, so uh, we hope that the model can kind of work at all ends of that spectrum. Yeah, I think that's an important point is that uh, this article is a fantastic roadmap, but it, it is also a philosophy on, on the importance of uh, potentially viewing simulation as an intervention and holding ourselves to account, whether that be with a large team making a huge difference to a very complex problem or whether that be uh, one person in uh, a smaller environment wanting to make sure that what they're doing is having an impact and holding themselves and their organization accountable for how they do that. Um, so I'm wondering, uh, we might wrap things up there in terms of uh, the podcast. So we've talked about the principle of translational sim, uh, the importance of having that input process output framework, and we've explored these uh, five key principles, so systems approach, stakeholder involvement and participatory design, a strategy, not an event, discipline focus and functional task alignment. And then we've worked through two examples of different complexity in terms of how to make this work within your organisation. Uh, and I just wanted to finish with one last question is uh, where to from here? Well, uh, always tricky, isn't it? I think uh, Chris sort of started us on that conversation by saying we don't know. We would obviously anticipate that this might be helpful for people practically and so we hope to see more people that build on uh, the tools and resources with those principles. But I guess we'd also be hoping that other people join that conversation and say actually we think this principle is also important and that was omitted or we think there's something different and we would like to think that the uh, principles are built upon by others and their experiences as well because even as four authors in four different contexts, we're still very bounded by our own experience and uh, I think there's plenty of others to tap into around the world as well. When I think about where to from here for simulation, I, translational simulation, I think that the future really should be that translational simulation should become an embedded strategy for all health facilities. And in fact, I've said this a few times, but I don't think any new facility should be opened, any new process implemented, or even any now we know any new team coming together should happen unless we have gone through a strategy of translational simulation. Yeah, and I'd um, I'd agree with all of that. And I think it will be a bit of a shame if in 10 years' time our framework uh, looks exactly the same. Um, the I think if you are picking this paper up and you haven't done translational simulation before and you look at some of those tables, you'll be overwhelmed uh, about all the possibilities. And the, the key thing is you just need to pick what's going to work for you in that time and with your resources. And so it can be big or small depending on um, your context. But I think what we will probably find, and, you know, I love the work that Nora Coleman and colleagues have been doing on clinical space testing, for instance, we're seeing, um, I guess, more bespoke 
tools uh, growing out of people who are actually doing translational simulation rather than just being borrowed um, from other related fields. Um, and so I think we're going to see those tools being refined over time. And I guess one of the the, the key things for us, uh, I guess, believers in translational simulation is uh, really trying to get more sophisticated about how we can show that this is adding value, um, prove it and sell it to our organisations and then try and build capacity and uh, make sure that we're doing it uh, really well. Absolutely. Uh, Chris and Vic, thank you so much for your time tonight. I feel very privileged to have gotten to talk to you both about this. Thank you, Ben. It was a pleasure as always. Very nice to be on the other side of the microphone. <laughs> yeah, no, fantastic. Thanks for having me. And uh, I, it's a personal achievement that we managed to talk for less than two hours on this topic because, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, could, I could keep on going. <laughs> Aspirational goals. <laughs> we'll plan for the sequel. Great. All right. Uh, thank you Thanks, very much, Simulcast listeners. Good night. Simulcast. <laughs>